Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. Iron Goddess of Mercy is a long poem that channels the vengeful energies of the Furies to address modern-day issues of systemic racism, colonialism, climate destruction, and genocide in 64 dense haibun, with influences ranging from Hannah Arendt to Muppets creator Jim Henson, from Bing Crosby to the Dead Milkmen, from Rita Wong to Mao Zedong and the Tao Te Ching. Marissa Lai blends them all together in a dense stew of language with a haiku to cleanse the palate. Marissa Lai is the author of two previous books of poetry and two novels, holds a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing at the University of Calgary, where she directs the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing. Marissa, welcome. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here with you. We met in China, did we not? Yes, we did. Or perhaps in the airport on the way there, I think. Isn't that something? That was a really extraordinary trip, actually. When I look back on it, I kind of just kind of can't believe it. It was amazing. Because of the way that poets were treated, because of a government uh, reaching out to poets around the world to invite them to go there, or what, and the camaraderie of poets from around the world, um, connections that were made that maybe life, uh, lifelong connections, what other things about it um, did you value? Yeah, it was that for sure, just the extraordinary scale of the trip, right? That we had been invited there. I don't know how many of us were there, 30, 50 foreign um, writers. They invited and an equal number of Chinese writers. And then they, they bust us around all over the, the countryside in, uh, in Qinghai province. Um, and we got to see the birthplace of the Yellow River. How amazing is that, right? To be in those uh, on those lands at that time with people, you know, from, yeah, people from all over the world and also in a different kind of configuration than when one gets an invitation from Europe or here in Canada. So when one gets uh, an invitation from the U.S., right? And even if it's made international, the formation of the, of the how international is imagined is different. And I found that very, very interesting. So like that they were, you know, folks from um, Pakistan there, that they were folks from South and Central America. They're sort of the the old communist orbit in a sense, made for a different, very, and I had never had that kind of experience before. So that was extraordinary, you know. As a person whose family comes from Hong Kong, but there may have, uh, there must have been some conflicting feelings about dealing with um, the Chinese government. Sure, yeah, sure, absolutely, especially now. Uh, um, I mean, in that moment, you know, I mean, my way of approaching these things in general is that if someone is generous and makes an invitation and I'm interested and compelled by it, I try not to be too dukes up, I guess. I am a, you know, a, it's the hopeful part of me that wants the relationships to be built um, and that wants, you know, that wants to meet people. And I mean, if there was something amazing about that trip, it is that we got to have those conversations, right? And one of the things they did, which wasn't so great, was they they put all the Chinese writers in one bus and all the, the quote unquote international writers in the other bus. And so we didn't so much get to talk to the Chinese writers. And I that was one thing that I really 
felt was lacking. But uh, just the chance to have those conversations, I think, you know, is amazing. Now, of course, think with all that's going on in Hong Kong and in Xinjiang as well, yeah, feeling pretty disgruntled uh, with the current configuration of PRC government. Um, and that's fraught and painful. And sometimes I'm quite angry. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm angry at people, though. You know, like governments can do really crummy, lousy, more than that, violent, genocidal, terrible things. It doesn't necessarily mean that the population, that the people, that the writers are. It's not that we aren't responsible. I mean, I think anybody who's a citizen of a country is responsible for what that country does at some level. But it's a different kind of responsibility, I would say, than um, if I were to punch you in the nose right now, right? That would be a very direct kind of bad Larissa thing to do, and I should apologize. But if your if your government, my government, are are um, there's contention, or your government is doing something crummy to my people, I would probably still talk to you. You'd be pissed off at your government, but so I think you know these are the things, right? That. Uh, yeah, I'm not sorry to have gone on that trip. Um, and that you forgive the governments of the countries um, is being put in practice because you're talking to a citizen of the United States whose foreign <laughs> policy is, uh, you know, is on a par with uh, communist China. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you think of, yeah, U.S. imperial activities all over the world, right? Yeah thousand military bases around the world or whatever it is. We won't get into that or, or we will maybe through the context of or through the lens of your book. Tell us about Haibun. Did uh, Fred Watt turn you on to Haibun? Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, Fred is a, an old friend. And in fact, it's through Fred that that trip came about now that I think about it. Because he had gone on, they'd done it more than once. And he'd gone on an earlier iteration of it and told me about it and given me their name, given them my name. Uh, so yeah, Fred is a is an old friend. I've known him since my since my twenties, and we were friends. And then eventually, you know, I came back to to school in my late thirties, and he was one of my profs uh, at that time. So uh, I've known him for a very very long time. I'm obviously a huge fan of his work. Um, the most famous one is Diamond Grill, which with which Iron Goddess actually shares some things, right? This sort of energetic kind of uh, um, tumbling sense of narrative. Um, but there's an earlier, yeah, 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 that one, yeah. Um, beautiful. It's a beautiful book for any readers who are not aware. Um, but there's an earlier uh, book called uh, Waiting for Saskatchewan, in which um, which actually contains sort of high bun, kind of more... Uh, um, traditionally structured. Yeah, yeah, that one. Um, so in the later half of that book, there's a, a long poem called Mother, Father, Haibun, where he's thinking about his family as one does, you know, and for Fred, it's really like so much of the conversation is with his dad. Um, but that one's Mother, Father, Haibun. And uh, yeah, he's just sort of thinking beside them about his childhood and the places from which they come and the territories um, in which he grew up, so the Kootenays. Uh, and it's that structure 
that, uh, that that he engages there. Um, so I did learn it from him. Roy Kuka does it as well, though. The Hybun form. Say again. Roy Kuka. Oh, Roy Kuka. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, my bookshelf is in the other room. I pulled it up. It's over it, there. It, well, my W is having to be right next to me there. So ah. I can. I have to reach up for the Gary Snyders, but I, I'm right next <laughs> to the William Carlos Williams and the Ann Waldman and the Walt Whitman and and, and the W's and Fred Y. And Phyllis Webb is not far. Um, so, so the seed for Hybun was planted by Fred and Roy. Uh, but tell us about how Iron Goddess of Mercy, how you first envisioned um, that this would happen. Sure. Um, so I don't know if envisioning is really, there was nothing deliberate about the writing of this book. Um, yeah, as you know, as we've just been discussing, there's been a ramping of um, anti-democratic repression in Hong Kong. And that's something that's very, very much on my mind, you know, as, uh, yeah, as, a, as a second generation Hong Kong person. Um, and then here in Canada, as I know in the, in the US as well, um, we've been having a lot of upheaval around a range of very complex issues. And um, here it's, we've been calling it the dumpster fire in Canlit, you know, a sort of a sense of uh, deep discontent with um, how the industry, the field, the discipline is formed, uh, the the, the overrepresentation of white folks, the lack of access for um, black, indigenous, people of color, um, exclusions of women, exclusions, exclusions of GBLTQ2S folk, queer people. Um, and also the Me Too movement, right, has been also sort of shaking things up here as, as uh, down there in the U.S., um, and a lot of, I, I really believe in the activist work, Paul. I really, really think it's important, you know? Like, I think it's important that people who inhabit racialized bodies and who are carrying, you know, histories, memories, historical memory in the body. Um, so for black folks of, of slavery and its aftermath, for indigenous folks of land theft and its ongoingness. Right here now, you know, we're going through this very, heart-wrenching, painful moment when um, uh, the graves of children who were murdered in the residential schools are being uncovered. And it's devastating. It's brutal. And I think the only people who can speak of those things with, it's not just authority, it's a kind of I've been using the term poetical, borrowing from Joan Redlack. It's very helpful for me because it, it sort of steers away from those sort of essentialized modes that I think a lot of people take up because they can't see another way. So if this poetry has something to contribute to this, it is that, that sense of movement in language and, um, and a shifting language-based um, ethics. Um, yeah, so anyway, so I do think that, you know, embodiment and the embodiment of history is really, really important. Um, but I also think the relationships are really important, the relationships through and across, right? So, sure, from white folks to BIPOC folks, but also 
within that designation, which is such an artificial, you know, awkward designation we call BIPOC because it encompasses such a broad range of folks carrying a broad range of histories, not all of them necessarily um, uh, comfortable with one another. Um, because if anything, if there's anything that colonialism and imperialism has done, right, it's divide and conquer. It's, it's pitted people against one another and people have done, you know, from one racialized position to the next, deep harms that don't and probably shouldn't resolve easily. Um, so for me, I mean, this whole moment has just been one um, in which uh, there's been a lot of intense feeling. Um, and I, I'm, I'm witnessing, you know, my younger friends and colleagues um, feeling these feelings as well. And uh, in a lot of cases, driving towards sort of absolute positions on the, the contents, because for them, that's what it is to be political. I, and I, I get that, I do that sometimes too. I mean, sometimes it sort of seems, okay, there is a clear thing, somebody needs to be called out. Somebody does need a punch in the nose, who's gonna do it, right? And so the activist in me is like, okay, well, let's do it, let's, let's do it. But oftentimes it's not like that. Like there are, there are areas that are gray and we're being pushed to make, to decide that it's gray. But if you don't decide, and if you don't decide, it seems like a cop out. So I think that that's the thing that Iron Goddess is sort of trying to deal with is, yeah, I do feel very passionate about these things. They're damn painful, you know? And so one can't either go to the sort of some of the high formalisms that have been more, um, that were more fashionable a decade ago, where, you know, the, the author is dead and there's nothing but the text. And um, we want, you know, there's nothing but pure form, pure structure. No, that's like, doesn't work for me because, um, because I think this work still needs to be connected to the world needs to be connected to people, it needs to be connected to history, it needs to be connected to bodies and bodies of experience, it needs to be connected, you know, to the full sort of density of our of our lives here on here on Turtle Island. Um, and yet I'm not, it's not my nature, I think. I guess because, you know, and I wonder if part of this has to do, thinking back to that that trip to China with a a kind of I still love my people. I still love Chinese people, you know? So even though the Chinese government is doing like crappy things, I can't go and therefore all Chinese people are crap. I just can't, right? Yeah. Well, um, so, so it's that, it's, you know, it's that sort of uh, trying to deal with these flows of affect that are profoundly political in some sense uh, without, veering into that thing that Ray Chow calls the fascist belongings in our midst. When you were talking about your younger friends who are really upset about the way things are going, I wanted to say um, either you're, you're non-binary or you're not. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so all, all this undercurrent, then on top of that is placed uh, a pandemic lockdown out of which emerges, based on the Dao De Ching, uh, uh, the I Ching, 64 hexagramish haibun um, for you to have 
a container of usually about a page, sometimes a page and a half, two pages, followed with a haiku um, to see where your mind, the moment, and the language may take you. So was it was it that um, free time that you had by being locked in your, locked in your house like the rest of us about a year ago, a year and a half ago? The bulk of this book was actually written before the pandemic. The pandemic hit, so I was editing and revising, um, just as as COVID landed, and of course the book came out. When did the book? The book came out in the middle of it, right? I think April, so. April. Well, I, I saw a review in April, so it was yes. before April this year. So it came out just after the pandemic started, and I was doing the last. Um, working with uh, the, the wonderful poet uh, Trish Salah on what we were calling the poetics read. A lot of folks will call it sensitivity read. So I was doing that with her as um, as the pandemic hit. Um, so it wasn't so much having time. I did other things while the pandemic was on, um, but this was pretty much done by then. Um, but I did have the chance, you know, the pandemic hit, and I think I did have a chance to add a little bit of language acknowledging the the moment of the pandemic. I mean, the curious weirdo thing is the book prior to this one, The Tiger Flu, is about a pandemic. <laughs> and it came out just before. And so that was sort of weird to, you know, find, talk. He's still talking about that book when this one came out. And to have that one very much sort of in the thick of thinking about that. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if there is pandemic thinking in this book because of still carrying the tiger flu with me. Um, not everything is conscious, right? And the language is so sort of double tripled, sort of multiplied over that um, any, any sort of drive towards sort of meaning or content always slips away again. And things can slip in as well to the language. Um, so in terms of the I Ching, and the Haibun, oh, one thing I was going to say that I didn't earlier around the Haibun form um, is that, and this is how this thing started is, it didn't start as Haibun. It was just, so speaking of that sort of like rolling, tumbling, sort of endlessly flowing um, barrage of language that sort of makes up those, the sort of page, page and a half uh, um, prosy parts of the poem. Uh, Initially, that's all there was. There were no haiku. It wasn't haibun. It was just wall-to-wall -wall block text. Like, it was a rant that was just going and going and going and going for pages and pages and pages and pages and days and days and days and days. And, days. and uh, at an early stage in the writing, my, my, my good friend and colleague, Dina Alkasim, arranged a reading for me uh, at Green College at UBC. And many of my lovely friends, I'm sure you, some of them you will know, you know, all the, the kids who are no longer kids from Strathcona. So, you know, Fred Wan, uh, Pauline Butling, Peter Cotomain, Meredith, and uh, Daphne and uh, Bridget. Um, a lot of my, you know, they're, they're my friends, they're my, my, my mentors and my teachers. And they very graciously came to hear me and I was reading the thing. And it was so breathless, Paul, I just broke down crying. We just broke down and could not, and I was like there and there were students and there was, you know, Dina was there and former colleagues and I just couldn't talk. It was really quite embarrassing, but also um, 
yeah, just also, I guess there's, it's no wonder because, um, because there's so much affect, there's so much emotion in, in the thing. So I definitely sort of like grabbing back onto that, that thing that I think poetry has been trying to put aside for a long time. Some ways of being poetry has been trying to put aside. The emotion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, we, Paul, I broke down. It was impossible to read. And I still wasn't sure what it was. Like at that point, it was still very much kind of an experiment. I was just receiving all this language, right? And that, you know, Dina and uh, a couple of other friends, my friend Smart Camberley, um, thought, you know, this, this, is a, this is a poem. It's a poem. Like, okay, it's a poem. It's a poem now, what do I do with it? Because I can't read it. And then I was at uh, um, a, a workshop uh, with my friend, Monica Kingagnon, the, the, the critic and writer, um, and with a teacher, uh, um, uh, Dina Metzger in Los Angeles, one year, I guess, a year, the summer before the pandemic, trying to figure out what the heck and what to do. And uh, Dina really, really wanted me to slow it down. She, she said, you know, it's just, there's too much there. I can't, I don't know what to do with this. You got, I have to slow it down. I'm like, I don't even know how to slow this down. If I pull it apart, I think it will just break it. So I, I don't know. But curiously, Monica was working on um, uh, a project on uh, Teresa Hakim Cha and trying to figure out how to structure it. And Dina said to her, have you ever heard of this, this Japanese poetic form uh, called Haibun? And Monica said, yeah, I've heard of it. I could try it. She tried it. It's like, this ain't working. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe possibly that's the thing. And uh, so I tried it and sure enough, right? those little resting spots by um, uh, putting them sort of periodically, by sort of seeing where there was potential for break. And what it actually ended up doing, you know, most of these things like the block chunks were written over the course of a day, right? So each one is written over the course of a day. And so I just broke them down by the day, by, you know, what I'd done, the work I'd done over the course of the day. And then put the, high the haiku between, the poem became readable and probably I hope a little bit more legible. I mean, it's a strange kind of legibility because the language is so polysemic and it's such a tumble, but I think it gave space to, to readers um, as well to sort of give them as well something to hang their hats on so they also are not too overwhelmed by it. So there's something very human, I think, about the Haibun form, you know, that sort of may make the poem possible. I had to have an awkward conversation with Monica, which is very, very gracious. She's like, oh, maybe that was meant for you, you know? She gave it to me, but maybe it was meant for you. So she's been a lovely supportive friend ever since early, early days. Number two is on page 12. And um, I'd love if, if you could read that. People will get a sense for those who haven't heard it, you did a reading for Planet Earth Poetry, 
and um, I intend to put a link on the blog post to that so people can hear you in a reading setting. Um, um, but yeah, number two, and then we can we can talk about that. That goes for a page and a half, and then the haiku at the end. Sorry, you'll forgive me changing glasses. I'm just at that moment in life when the vision is really like wonky. I have like one distance for the computer, another for the page. Uh, here's number two. Oh, we didn't talk about the I Ching. I'll talk about it later. Um, here's number two. Dear occupation, know your station, waste in and Wang Nei Chung gap, blast in the mishap of opium's cornucopia, the dope of East Asia co-prosperity, no apology after the golly of America's post-war reconstruction plus deduction paid by the rough stamp of made in Japan versus made in China, bullying fragrant harbors ever open shop. No stop, even on Sunday, my hawker rushes for cart into hiding. As cops bop, your survival's illegal. Watch the eagle and praise the rule of law. Always say uncle when Sam comes knocking. No flocking or swarming in hordes or perils. Stay feral and leave the critters to the army of uniforms, British, Japanese, or PRC. Occupation's your vocation. Your relation makes a paste of yellow flesh. Here to do picky duty with fingers nimble till they stumble, eyes precise until they slant, the cant to burnout under factory lights, burning special economic in Samjun, Gaolong, Chungking nest of my marginal brothers, watering the swamp, paid over, paved over in backwards rhetorics, clean as the mean or mister, blistering all my black-haired sisters down to the last drop of blood, pus coffee or tea. Here's glee. Here's a plea. My market stark as other blood marking Nanking, Manchu Kuo, or Hong Kong on Christmas Day, our modern Christian praying for deliverance of the kind of colonizer interned at Stanley as all our brothers stagger mass rapes estimation at 10,000. I don't want to talk about it. I was so unhappy then. I'm happy now. I have you, little shoe and pretty dress, my hair's a mess. Do you have to drive that ugly car, Star? Let's get away from him. He's ignorant, he doesn't know anything. And do you have lots of pretty friends in your nice school in Newfoundland, Newfoundland? I wanted to go to school, he made me stop at grade three. I could have been smart like you, like your mama. All my children are so smart. I never thought my life would turn out this good. Buy me another set of those pajamas from Zeller. So comfy, cheap, elite and pass my Chanel sweet smell of everything's going to be all right. It takes a mountain to build a village at Yao Yachin, an embargo to lose it. The um, stay feral comment was one I underlined. Uh, and then I never thought my life would turn out this good. <laughs> I have an American sentence that goes, my whole life, my, my whole life flashed before my eyes. It was better than I remembered. <laughs> uh, can you stay fear? I mean, the language is feral. So you're saying stay feral in a, in a very, uh, a very wild kind of language, which I thought was pretty cool, but there's probably more to it than that. Um, well, I mean, part of what the film is doing is turning on, hinging on rhyme, right? So feral rhymes with peril, which is not a mistake. Um, so thinking about the ways in which um, 
Chinese people in particular were um, understood in America, in the US and in Canada, uh, in one of the earlier waves of arrival as horror, as peril, as a threat right, that comes to these Western shores in order to take from deserving white people. So there's that. And then, uh, haha, I've got to find it now. Um, so the, the notion of plurality, I think, is interesting in relation to that sense of, you know, having been taken in by the human, but then also retaining uh, a sense of the wild, even as one is sort of inhabiting these urban spaces. And um, for those of me, who, those, those, those listeners who know me as the speculative fiction uh, writer as well, right? We know that the notion of the human so much gets troped as whiteness. You just need to sort of think about the ways in which um, um, racial racial tropes are redeployed in um, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Um, so the humans are always white, and then uh, it's the non-human who are sort of figured as the as the, as people of color. Uh, so this sense of um, being only partly human of having some kind of connection to the animal. Of course, it's racist, right? To just be very clear that that figuration of racialized people as closer to, an to animal belongs to, you know, 19th century racial theory that remains in our language and comes out in times of stress when people are feeling the hate. Um, so it's a reclamation of that though, and a reclamation of some element of, um, uh, connectivity to the quote unquote natural world. So uh, interestingly, to get back to the question you were asking me about the I Ching, right? Um, there's an embrace in this poem to the best of my ability of um, Chinese philosophical traditions that don't do the mind-body split. And if the mind-body split is not done and the human nature split is not done and you know the I Ching sees that, sees um, plays the uh, flows and plays of chance as kind of belonging to that thing that, you know, in a Western uh, idiom we would call nature. Um, and uh, so the word feral in a sense is kind of catching a little bit of, a little bit of that, even as it's not breaking free of all this sort of um, uh, racial, racial connotation. And so there's a sort of spit back at the same time, right? You hear the rage and the use of the language because this is, this is the language I have, and this language is so freighted with crap that I don't really want, and yet now it's part of me. Right. I remember when I was lost in the wilderness and uh, waiting for a rescue helicopter, the things that went through my head, including, you know, vitamin commercials and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, that kind of shit. You can't get it out. It comes up when, you're, when you've been all alone for five, six days or whatever it is. Um, there was a, a, a thought it, when you were talking about that, uh, about your process. And I wonder, as you're composing, if you remember, um, there must be a split second choice between sound or sense, uh, you know, between wordplay and quote unquote content. Um, does that come up or is that so far in the background when you're composing that it's not an issue? Yeah, it comes up. Sure, yeah, it comes up. I, I compose slightly slower than I read, although not much, and these are composed very, very quickly. And so they have a certain roughness to them that, and the minute you try to polish it off, the poem stops, stops working. Um, I think 
the reason for that is that there's a, you know, there's a certain accrual, there's a certain kind of stacking that happens both in sound and in whatever of meaning transfers forward. Um, and so, yeah, sure, there are moments. It's that weird thing of, you know, attending to those movements in the mind and sometimes between the mind and the hand, I'm not always sure which, which possibility has presented itself first. So that to the best of my ability, I was sort of trying to put onto the page the possibility that first presented itself, so the language that wants to come. But of course, there's always that little editorial bar in there that's kind of going, Oh, did you mean to say feral or peril? Did you mean Shrek or Shanghai Shek? You know, which one did you, which one actually came first? <laughs> and uh, you have, now you have to decide, you have to decide. And after a while, you know, you've been quite neurotic about it, you can make yourself quite ill because you have to do it. It's all happening so quickly. Um, Paul, there must have been an element of choice, you know, that if I put this pun down, I can get that rhyme later. Or if I lay this meaning out, I can get that meaning later. And in those sort of really lucky sort of poetical rolls of the dice, sometimes I'd also get a word that would get both, right? So sometimes you get both this sort of the signification that you want and the sound that you want, and then that's the best. And that would be what I would aim for. But it was weird having to edit, right? And especially in those moments working with Trish in the, in the poetics read, where it's like, oh, I really don't want to use that word. It's kind of offensive. But it rhymes or it makes <laughs> Now what do I do, right? Now what do I do? Yeah. And if I stick another word in there, do I choose for the a close signification or do I choose for a close sound? Is there one that can do both? And and there, that was much more than the Lloyd had long conversations about it um, in, in those moments. But compositionally, probably it's happening all the time um and so then that's a real gift isn't it when you get something that uh, that will sort of give you that polysteme that that you want yeah when you were talking about the uh, traditions that don't have that split between the mind and body i mean this is so central to my own story of doing um, public affairs interviews and gravitating towards alternative medicine natural medicine folks who um, realize that we deal with things in a very symptomatic fashion and in many of these public affairs interviews that i did back in the radio days it was equating that allopathic medicine impulse um, to uh, being the equivalent to american foreign policy and that is find the bad part and kill it right yeah, right yeah, yeah so so having the mind body connected i think that writing that is really embodied is uh, is incredibly marginal uh, in our world, and especially with the the force that academia gives certain kinds of writing. Um, and I speak of Michael McClure, I guess, more than anyone else, because he's one of my all-time poetry heroes. But I see very little uh, writing that really is embodied. So it's it's almost as if that's the that's the last uh, that's the last margin. Also. Um, that line, I never thought my life would turn out this good, uh, is, mm -hmm. is wonderful. Do you want to speak to that? or? Sure, I'm channeling my grandmother. So I don't know if that, that's audible to listeners, but by the time 
uh, yeah, when the poem says, I was so unhappy then, I'm really starting to listen to her. Um, and she, you know, Cantonese was her first language. She didn't have, she was a very, 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 very smart human, uh, but didn't have a lot of education. My great grandfather didn't believe in education for women. So I think she went to school until grade three and then he pulled her out. And, um, but she, uh, she had all these kids who ended up being, you know, uh, so sport of my family is half sports people and half academics. Um, so she had all these kids who did all these sort of quite amazing things. And um, I think it's something that she thought about a lot. I think she also went through a lot of things in her life that, you know, it's a pretty traditional thing for people, for people, Chinese people uh, to not speak of the worst things that have happened to them. People just don't. That luck passes it on to the next generation. And it's just not really what you do in order to have a good life. You want to have a good life. You don't talk about the bad things. But I do know, you know, little bits of things that happened to her. Some she told me more that I sort of gleaned from watching her and my grandfather interacting with one another. Little bits that my aunts have told me little bits my mom has told me. Uh, and then one time she just came out and said this to me, I never thought my life would turn out this good. And I'm so happy I have you. So there's an element unfolding in this poem for sure, you know, of this sort of uh, guilt-ridden first world child, me, uh, trying to deal with and be responsible to the things that the earlier generations went through, the content of which I, you know, I'm not entirely certain and can't name as fact. Um, and so that, for me, that's what that little line, that's what that little line is, is, is doing insofar as one is driving for meaning or, or biographical connection, connection to something, which doesn't mean that readers can't do something else with it, you know, if, if the desire or the impulse, um, uh, arises. The Tao Te Ching is the current that runs through this whole book, uh, mentioned in the haiku of poem number eight on page 30, uh, the high the, uh, uh, number nine, among others, it's referenced. Um, how do you use this in your daily life? Oh, <laughs> that's a hard question. I have no idea, Paul. How do I use the Tao Te Ching in my daily life? Is it so much of the foundation of who you are that it's just, um, you know, it's just there and can come out at any time or is there a pra practice? I don't practice, not, well, do I? I think you're right that there's an element of it's just there and it's part of who I am. It's part of, I'm not, I mean, I would imagine that it's something inherited, right? In a sort of um, practiced way to mom and dad, I would imagine. My mom was um, a philosopher who uh, wrote, did her PhD on um, the relationship between um, the I Ching and uh, Leibniz's philosophy. Don't ask me to say anything more about that because I can't. Um, but I know that she was 
sort of actively thinking, if not about the Tao Te Ching, but the I Ching in, in, uh, in her work. Um, she never got, she never got a job, so the career didn't really, but that was sort of the thinking she was doing. And I, I, and I imagine she thinks about it and practices it, although she doesn't really talk about it. Um, but I, I do have a strong sense of, you know, having inherited an ethical stance toward the world that comes from them, that's practice-based. Um, and, but because they don't talk about it a whole heck of a lot, I don't even know how much of it is conscious for them and how much of it is not. I'm just sort of aware that when I find myself, you know, in, in, in sites of struggle in whatever form, the way that I'm thinking about it is not the way that people around me are thinking about it. And so in my early 20s, I started, it was more the eaching that I, that I worked with because, um, because I guess who doesn't do this in one's 20s, right? You want to know what the future is going to be. And so you're looking for something predictive. <laughs> and uh, so tarot cards and the I Ching were a thing. And the each, but the I Ching is obviously much more than that. It doesn't really predict at all. It offers uh, just a way of being in relation with others that the more I sit with it, the more, the, the more powerful I'm finding it. And even, you know, the way the hexagrams are structured, right? Where actually the whole line and the broken line, the relationship between them is dialectic. So pure metal Marxism, all that sort of punk rock, dukes up, dialectic battling that I was doing, right? When I was a sociology student in the 80s, uh, <laughs> um, suddenly appears again in the I Ching, but it's, uh, but it's subordinated to the circle. And that totally makes sense to me. Right, which is why you know, I mean, I keep fighting when it's necessary to fight, and sometimes it's called for. Um, but there are other times when you're at another spot in the circle, and uh, you need to do something else. It's not necessarily always about action. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not, and I, it's a much more sort of subtle uh, set of teachings than you know the Grundrisse or something like that. Yeah, mine is uh, mine are the runes, and uh, one of the runes says, "Never start a fight." But if you find yourself in a fight, make sure you finish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. Um, talk to us about how composing a long poem is. But although, if we talk about the composition of a long poem, you go back to your discussion of how this was a rant block and you just kind of chopped it up into high ones. So um, is that is that part of, I, I've not read your previous two books, but do you conceive of a book um, before you start writing it or do you just start writing and see what happens to it? Because I, I the way I came up, I mean, through, uh, you know, Robin Blazer, Jack Spicer, serial form, always yeah. thinking in terms of books or in terms of projects. I love the way that, Blazer not only thought in terms of specific books, but then the whole thing was a book itself, The Holy Forest. I just think that's a an amazing model, and I love it so much. Is that similar amazing. to how you do it, or is it not? Blazer was an amazing, amazing man. Um, I don't know, Paul. It sort of feels like there's different. There's multiple starting points. Mm -hmm. 
And so in one starting point, I don't have a clue. But then in other starting points, I don't know. I So for Sybil, Sybil was a series of four long poems in the earlier poetry book where I did sort of conceive of them as long poems. There were subject matters that I was, that I had in mind as sort of like initiating jump off points and then structures that presented themselves quite quickly. Um, and then with the fiction, I listened for voices. But fiction is a very different matter because it's such a conservative that the novel is such, even when you're playing with it, even when you're experimenting with it, there's so many, there are certain conventions that if you break them, people don't, won't follow you. So the novel is different. Or you turn into Richard Brodigan. Sorry, say again? Or you turn into Richard Brodigan. <laughs> very, very uh, nonlinear kind of quote unquote novel, really more of a poem that Jack Spicer okay. Uh, okay, assistant, you know. like my friend Robert Mizell's maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, I love in the end of the, the book, the acknowledgments, this wide range, and I alluded to it in my introduction, this wide Bing Crosby, Thompson Twins, Andy Warhol, W.B. Yeats, Leonard Cohen, <laughs> Michael Jackson, including our Mozart and the Dead Milkman, Jim Henson, and uh, the Carpenters, Mao Zedong, and others. Uh, I, I love how you do that and how they come up. Um, through the poem, um, and William Carlos Williams, who comes up a couple of times, or references to, allusions to him in uh, haiku number 17, a reference to the Red Wheelbarrow, and then also in number 37, page 102. Um, how is William, is Williams a source for your work, or is he just part of the canon that just comes up sort of like through the substrate, or? He's a source in a really elliptical way, because my good friend Roy Meeky did his PhD dissertation on Williams. And so I'm inheriting Williams directly through Roy, who's another friend, another teacher. Um, I think Williams is sort of always hovering there in the background in Roy's work. And of course, for Roy, you know, Will, the, the work with Williams was he was interested in experimental poetry and poetics. And he's aware of his own racialized body and Williams is as well. And um, so that engagement, so that engagement is there. I haven't made... It's not a really, really concerted one. It's for me. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a hee haw. You know, the the chickens, with the chickens, and the yeah, barrel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, I can't say that I've taken him on particularly seriously. He's sort of there as part of the constellation of you know predecessors, I guess, that I inherit in a really particular way, right? When you're talking about all those Black Mountain guys, I'm inheriting them through Roy and Fred. No. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, there's certainly not. They were wonderful teachers. <laughs> um, other sort of themes that come up in and out of the book, uh, Rita Wong, St. Iris. Yeah, sure. Rita, Rita, of course, legendary uh, poet, activist, and uh, not, to be, not to be messed with. Um, oh, not to be messed with. And one of my, one of my dearest friends. And so, in fact, you know, my first poetry book, Automaton, uh, but biographies, 
was written simultaneously with um, a long poem, a collaborative long poem that I did with Rita called Sibyl and Rest. And I learned so much about poetry from writing with her. Um, and so she remains a, a presence and an interlocutor always. I think I'm always talking to her. You know, you're right. She's so not to be messed with. She's such a fighter. She's a, a really powerful um, activist and poet. Um, you know, in many ways, one whose hem I feel I can never touch. She's like a, a better person, like a gooder person than me by, you know, a hundred million miles. And yet uh, she keeps me hanging around and I keep her hanging around and it does often feel like a conversation. Um, so if there's something unfolding with Rita in this book, because Rita is often a lot more clear about what the politics are and what needs to be done. And I think if I have both a strength and a flaw, it's I can never decide. And so um, I often find myself in my poetry talking to her because in Sybil, we were talking to one another and she was saying, but you have to do it like this. And I'm like, if you do it like that, you know, you're going to create this, 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 and this problem. Um, and she's like, but the right thing to do is this. And I'll be saying, well, yeah, but if you do that, you're going to hurt so-and-so, or you're going to upset this, or, you know, do you really want to be, so that's the conversation. And there's an element of that, that I think is probably continuing. Um, it's there in automaton as well. And I think it's here in this one. And then, sorry, who else were you asking? St. Iris. St. Iris. So I'm thinking about Iris Chang. Who I whose work I cannot read. Uh, so she was the um, uh, uh, a historian, a uh, sort of popular historian who was um, writing about the atrocities committed in the rape of Nanking, um, which was uh, perpetrated, you know, by the Japanese, the fascist Japanese Imperial Army on a Chinese city. Um, the atrocities were just unspeakable. I won't name them. I just, it, it's there's no point. I mean, it's just too, it's horrible. Uh, and of course she died, right? Um, I think just of uh, the sheer grief of um, uh, what it was that she was uncovering it. Who can hold that? Right. How, who can, look, it's not something you can witness in the, like the brutality is just too intense. And I think that that's something, you know, I think especially in this, in this historical moment, people tend to forget how much Chinese people have suffered. And, um, you know, because China is so much on the rise now, because it's banging its drum so hard, um, because so much of the wealth of, of China is finding its way uh, to North America. And so we, especially in a city, you know, which where I've spent so much of my adult life in Vancouver, it's there on the street. There's a lot of racial animus against it. Um, but of course, it's only a, a, a very small and particular part of uh, the worldwide Chinese population that, that one is seeing. And it's forgetting the history of even those people, even those who have made, made good become wealthy. Um, and so I think about her a lot to think about, you know, I think about Nanking, I think about Manchuria, and I think about Hong Kong because they were in Hong Kong as well. And the brutality in Hong Kong school, my grandmother doesn't talk. I don't know what it is that she's not talking about. Um, but um, Iris Chang is there for me as the figure who had the courage to look back, you know, to look back and then to turn to stone, right? 
Um, because I think there is something indeed holy, something spiritual about the work she was doing. But who could hold that? Yeah. I don't know. So I carry her with me for sure. You know, I hate to I hate to tip the ending. Uh, uh, you know, um, what do they call that? What do they call that when they don't want to tell you the ending? If you want to spoiler read alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. That's right. 64. The last one in the book. It's a page long and then there's a haiku. Um, that might be a good way to end uh, our chat. And then I'll maybe ask you one one or two follow-up questions and um, we'll let you go on your way. But uh, there's another Tao poem here. Sure. Oh, this glasses situation. One of these days. Uh, 64. Dear Tao, old rotary, Turtle shell squeal whistling in flames to name the hell of a revolutionary god. I split my cod, debone its spine to line a whispered history. Astronauts' impossible labor climbs back down millennia, returns to Earth. The E of Ching blusters to Shang ancestry, priestess geomancer of a bad romance. I'll take a chance on democracy from below, glowing in the slow heat of an other ember. Guilt shines beneath quilt of magpies flashing shimmery feathers as Protestant lies down on her bed of nails, dials dialectic for that long distance feeling, beguiled by the gush of blood staining the shroud of her own making. What king could ding this, melt dragons in cauldrons to brew a better soup? I stoop, loop Yue for Tinhao, Wun Yum for ocean goers, a fallow Kiteshvera of the long march across deserts, Bodhisattva of water, queen mother of a different west, rescues father and brothers from massive spiral sea to sky storm. Now her incense coil burns above, snaky, snakes from ceiling of wet temple, steps from station of the cross. We were not yet Chinese when Shang was ancient, I dream my being returned to weavers once in future North Star. Dear Tong Yun, I pilot my ship on South China Sea, blink my split toenail, cast net for wishes, bungle my smuggle for a pot of rice steamed with salted fish. Echo wagers cap against standard, cues pool table to return love's body in remembered alphabets, lunar pole. Wonderful. Yeah. A, 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 a hopeful feel at the end of the book as I guess might be appropriate. Um, the Iron Goddess, besides being a kind of oolong tea, um, does the Iron Goddess prevail through this age of crisis, through all the things I mentioned to a better world in which uh, um, people are treated um, based on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin? Does she prevail? I don't know. I don't know, Paul. I mean, I think she's there. I mean, isn't that one of the wonderful things about the gods and goddesses, right? The spirit world is there, these sort of uh, permeative presences, these eternal presences that don't leave us. Does that mean that we get to land somewhere 
good where we whatever whatever ideal it is that we might hold up arrives and doesn't depart again um and i would say the answer to that is probably no that's the point of working with the I Ching, right? Everything's constant motion, everything has changed. Everything is constantly in flux and flow. And even as you're given something that seems in your eyes to be good, there's a lining that's, you know, there, there's a lining or there's other parts that are not so good and vice versa. When you're given a disaster, often something, something productive rises out of it, right? Isn't there a there's a, a traditional story, what you call it, where, you know, the story about a man, he finds a horse and thinks he's so lucky. And he puts his son on the horse and the son falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And he thinks it was so unlucky to find the horse. Right. But then the army comes uh, uh, re- recruiting, but actually press ganging young men into war. And the young and the, and the farmer's son doesn't have to go to war because he has a broken leg. And so the horse turned out to be good after all. I think that that's, I don't know, the more, the older I get, the more I'm in this world, the more aware I am of the world as a field of change um, in which any of the things that we might want, including, you know, being judged for one's character rather than the color of one's skin, right? Which I, I do think it's is a wonderful ideal, but it also comes out of a particular tradition that was that was perpetrating, you know, ideas of race um, through the colonial project at the same time, and in fact producing it. And um, I don't think we ever get to get away from that. But I still think it's good to hold up ideals. So it's not and not saying throw them out. We still have to have them. We don't dream them. We never get. We don't get to have them. Yeah, I have this long essay called. Uh, Emergent, or emergent utopias, or sometimes I'll see emergent insurgency, where I think about that, you know, as the problem that we, the necessity of having ideals, the necessity of utopian thinking, but the impossibility of actually arise, uh, arriving there. And because there's so many of us all acting or not acting in relation to one another, we can't know what the outcome's going to be. But I think the poets, at least, and maybe some others as well, can know to pay attention to those moments when there is something like hope, right, or fairness, or justice, bubbling up for a second, even if it flits away again. So I don't know, is that hopeful or is that really pessimistic for both? It seems to me rich with negative capability, and I think that's mm. a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to tell you what a honor and a privilege it is to be able to engage you in this very deep and intimate way about your work. Um, I think uh, the work is very important. It's a beautiful poem, and um, I'm delighted to renew our connection and wish you continued success, health, and happiness. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for being so thoughtful about the work. and. Um... Uh, engaging me in such a so generously in this conversation really appreciate it Cascadian Prophets is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington check us out online at cascadiapoeticslab.org